If you have enjoyed Baker Street 2033, why not consider supporting the second series? Go to ko-fi.com slash neilfitzgerald. That's ko-fi.com slash neilfitzgerald. Your support would be most welcome. A future Sherlock Holmes mystery. The Glass Cryptographer by Neil Fitzgerald. Episode 6 Another Scarlet Thread. city of Victorian and Edwardian villas, black-painted railings, tree-lined squares with neat swathes of grass, all of which possessed a reassuring quaintness in stark contrast to the gleaming modern angles of the city. What a soothing gratification it was for our beleaguered souls to look on a London we could once more recognise. We both stared in silence out of the windows at the familiar architecture, the cobbles, the solidity of bricks and mortar, drinking in the sight as sailors long at sea will do upon their return home. As we approached our destination of Clifton Gardens, we saw that we were not alone in our search. Turning into the street, we were greeted by the flashing blue lights of several fluorescent automobiles parked at right angles across the street, indicating Scotland Yard was already on the case. The street had been cordoned off with a sort of bright yellow ribbon preventing our approach, and several constable automata in their faux uniforms were stationed outside Miss Rouche's apartment. The sight of the police presence had a radical effect on Miss Rouche, who gasped and looked set to faint. Only fresh air from the window and some smelling salts which, to my own surprise, I automatically omitted from a diffuser about my person, revived her ailing spirits. I waited in the taxi with her as Holmes alighted and approached the cordon to find out what had occurred. Just at that moment, Inspector Chatterjee emerged from the house. Ah, Mr. Holmes. So you're taking the ruse seriously? She said, walking down the steps leading from the front door. She was wearing the same thin, transparent glasses as those possessed by Miss Rouche and the museum's visitors. At the request of my client, Inspector, replied Holmes, indicating the taxi. The profession of consulting detective is still flourishing in the modern age. Amelia Rouche, I presume. Yes. What has happened here? I'm afraid that I am not at liberty to divulge that information to the public. This is an official police inquiry with no room for amateurs, especially ones in fancy dress. Oh, there's nothing especially fancy about a morning suit, Inspector, retorted Holmes with a wry smile on his lips. I see you have been making use of your 7% solution, Mr. Holmes, in spite of my sound advice not to. Holmes smiled wryly at this. Well, if we cannot be of assistance to your inquiries, then we will bid you good day. And Holmes tipped his hat with elegant politesse towards the inspector. I will, however, have a word with Miss Rouge. She brushed past Holmes, her shoulder striking that of my friend in a most uncivil manner. She approached the door of the taxi and said, Miss Amelia Rouge, good evening. My name is Inspector Chatterjee. I'm with Scotland Yard. Could I have a word with you in private, please? Yes, of course, Inspector, she replied. However, there is nothing you can say to me that I would not be happy to have Mr. Holmes and Dr. Watson here. Clearly chagrined, the Inspector eyed us with consternation as she said, Very well, madam. 
All three of us were soon sat in the back of one of the fluorescent automobiles blocking the street. Miss Roosh, I am sorry to have to tell you. She did not need to finish her sentence. Her husband was dead and her murder was suspected. Holmes's brow furrowed at this most unexpected news. We had hardly begun the investigation and it had now come to the worst of conclusions. Miss Roosh showed remarkable fortitude considering the force of the blow she had just received and her tears and stifled sobs did not impede her responses to the inspector's questions. Such grace added a new depth to her already considerable beauty. We learnt no essential details about the nature of the death during this brief exchange, other than it had been a violent and sustained attack. Chatterjee pressed Miss Rouge for the names of anyone who might have wanted to hurt her husband. She knew of no one specifically, but mentioned the erratic behaviour he had been exhibiting the previous week, as well as this curious notion of his being chipped to improve his mental agility. After receiving Miss Roosh's agreement, Holmes and I alighted from the taxi to take in the evening air. It was a mild summer's night, occasionally interrupted by a welcome breeze, with the light only just fading in the clear sky. One or two stars were visible through the queer white glow given off by the abundant street lights. Well, Holmes? The same old scarlet thread, Watson. Human nature remains reliably consistent even when nothing else does. So it seems. Now to access the scene of the crime. A future Sherlock Holmes mystery. Episode 7. The Science of Forensics. While Chatterjee continued to question Miss Roosh in the police automobile, we gravitated towards the yellow ribbon cordon, peering up to the door of the apartment. There was a flurry of activity as various persons moved in and out the house towards several vans newly arrived in the street. Whether they were men, women or automata, it was impossible to tell, since all were draped in strange white suits of an insubstantial material, their hands begloved, their very shoes covered in curious spatterdashes, and each sported a hood and face mask all of a like hue, so that only their bespectacled eyes were visible. Here is our chance, Watson, whispered Holmes. Follow me. We sloped round the cordon, taking advantage of the lengthening shadows to obscure our movements, and edged our way towards one of the vans. We awaited a propitious moment when all the besuited constables were in the house and then snuck under the cordon and into the back of one of the vans. Inside we found a miscellany of wonders, transparent boxes, sundry utensils, laboratory equipment, labels, torches, large calculating machines and, more importantly, the very same hooded suits, glasses and gloves being worn by the other investigating officers. I have never known Holmes to dress as quickly as he did at that moment. Within minutes, both of us emerged from the back of the vehicle in our new disguises and made our way up the steps and into the front door of Miss Roosh's apartment. Finding the location of the body was a matter of simply following our ears to the noisiest room, which was the front reception room where a hive of activity was in progress. The room itself was spartanly furnished, an armchair, a sofa, a coffee table, a bookshelf and a vast translucent glass square on one wall. But what was truly remarkable was what was occurring within it. It was a crime scene utterly unlike any we had hitherto encountered. 
It was as though all Holmes's strict specifications for the handling of the body and all related suspicious items and potential clues had not only been applied to the letter, but improved upon with the gigantic advances in technical machinery. Chatterjee was clearly neither Lestrade nor Gregson in her approach to detective work. The body remained unmoved on the floor and one of the constables hovered over it at various angles. The flashes emitted from those strange visor-like glasses he wore suggested he was taking photographs of the body in situ and, I later discovered, moving pictures of the crime scene too. Several of the besuited constables were examining the room and issuing various commands. Magnify, fix, scan, analyse, although whom too was by no means clear. One was applying a dusting of talcum powder to various fixtures and fittings for what appeared to be fingerprints, which showed up when a violet light, also emitted by the glasses, was shined upon them. The constable then documented any discovered fingerprints photographically. Other officers were using tweezers to remove minuscule items from the carpet, and now one was removing material from the body's fingernails. The examination was meticulous, and there seemed little for us to do. No medical opinion was required for a pathologist had already determined the time of death within a five-minute margin of error, that time being 9.30am, by means of some thermometer-like device. Meanwhile, Holmes's unique powers of observation and deduction were being performed en masse before our very eyes. I looked at my friend, who was busy scrutinising the ghastly mess that had been made of the victim's skull through his glasses, whilst my own scrutiny seemed quite prosaic and superficial by comparison. Satisfied by his investigations, he left off and approached me where I stood in one corner of the room. "'Watson, you simply must see this!' exclaimed Holmes, his excitement clear in spite of the muffling qualities of the mask he wore, and he extended me a peek through his spectacles. The view was quite different from those I wore. The lenses were awash in animated life. The left lens contained a flashing circle resembling the crosshair target on a rifle, whereas the right lens was filled with a constantly updating script of words and numbers, and yet one could still see quite clearly through the lenses to view the world beyond if one chose to. They do all the work for you, explained Holmes. You issue the command and it will perform inter alia electroscopic analysis of substances and instantaneous cross-referencing against the vast databases we discussed earlier. Enormous magnification of the most microscopic elements, as well as a telescopic capacity for zooming in on items, torchlight and photographic documentation. It is an extraordinary advance on the magnifying glass I carry. So, what's left for the detective to do? I exclaimed. Indeed, said Holmes lugubriously. Holmes later suggested that this forensic science, as it was called, was the inevitable development of his own methods, and he entirely approved of it, even if it vastly diminished the need for his own examination of a scene. Further automation is equally inevitable, he said, and he pointed out that half the forensics team we had witnessed had been machines, robots he called them, acting under the supervision of one or two human officers. But the glasses, Holmes, I asked. Disguise, Watson, just like yourself. Theirs was as superfluous as your own. So, Holmes, what did you learn about Alan Roosh's demise? We returned to the head of the body. Violently bludgeoned with a blunt instrument from behind. And, once Roosh fell, the battering continued until the skull had been cracked open like one of Mrs. Hudson's soft-boiled eggs. I've heard of such methods being used by the Yatui tribe in Papua New Guinea. Seeing my confusion... He continued, Cannibalism, Watson. 
For them, the brain is a delicacy prized with supposed intelligence-boosting properties. I shuddered at the thought of such barbaric practices. Here, however, the brain has been left intact. Though something has been extracted from within the skull with a pair of forceps, several groove-like abrasions on the bone can clearly be seen under high magnification. The chip, I cried. Precisely, Watson. As I looked down at the body of Alan Roosh, my heart could not help but go out to his newly widowed young wife. Poor Miss Roosh. I am sure you will find a way to comfort her, said Holmes dryly. I parried this ugly remark with another question. But who would want to commit such savage violence, and why? I have some ideas. His voice suddenly exploded into life, quite the most animated I had seen him since our reunion. Watson, this is the most intriguing of cases, quite out of the commonplace run of things. However, we need more facts or risk bending our theories to fit the very few that we have, which will not do. It is time to pay the self-service a visit. As we stepped back out, Inspector Chatterjee was just coming up the steps. Sorry, Inspector, said Holmes, before bumping into her shoulder. Entirely puzzled as to the meaning of this discourteous gesture, Chatterjee turned round and watched us walk off to the police van before shrugging and disappearing across the threshold to the apartment. Sherlock Holmes will return in... Episode 8, The Self-Service. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you might like to try others by the same writer and producer, such as Dear Old Blood, Notes on a Wittgenstein Noir, and Modern Gothic. The writer now has a cracking idea for a second series of Baker Street 2033. So, you could also consider supporting the writer at buymeacoffee.com slash Neil Fitzgerald.